Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us for the hour, taking your calls. The co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the uh, second district of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman Pocan, what's going on in Congress? What's on your mind today? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Very glad to be here with your listeners. Yeah, I think the main thing on my mind is just uh, this COVID package. Unemployment extension ran out last week. The eviction protections run out this week. And uh, we've got a lot of people still hurting through no fault of their own. People who've lost their job through no fault of their own. Small business owners who've lost demand through no fault of their own. And uh, we still have, unfortunately, a raging pandemic raging in the United States more than almost anywhere else because of the ineptitude and the negligence of this president. So we've got to get this package done quickly. I I don't think it's going to be this week. I think it would be pretty tough. We're hoping it'll be next week. But we really have to get something that puts people and workers first, not uh, big business liability. And for crying out loud, they have funding for F-35s in the Republican COVID package. I miss that new feature of the F-35 that feeds people and pays your rent. But those are the sorts of crazy things the Republicans are proposing during this pandemic. I understand they also want to limit liability if a corporation makes a specific decision that hurts or injures. In fact, they even want to do away with malpractice insurance for a while. And this follows the Trump ordering meatpacking workers back to work with a federal executive order right. that, that eliminates any possibility of their saying no, eliminates their possibility of getting unemployment insurance if they say, no, I can't do that. I've got somebody at home who's you know 60 years old or has asthma or whatever. What are these people thinking, Congressman? They're just thinking about their base and, quite honestly, their donors. They want to turn the clock back 50 years to when employers had a lot more power and workers did not. And I don't think uh, anyone who's a worker in this country wants to go back to those days where they don't have the protections or the say in their workplace. But if that, the fact that that's a priority during a COVID package where we should be talking about testing and contact tracing and mask wearing and doing things to get rid of the disease, it's really pretty outrageous. But again, Mitch McConnell, I, I've grown to accept that. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Okay, well, let's pick up some phone calls here. David sure. in Columbus, Ohio, listening on WGRN. You're on the earth, Congressman Pocan. Hello, Congressman. I wanted to ask Thank why you. The Democratic Party still supports these gigantic defense budgets. I do my best to lobby my own congressperson, but I feel like I'm a voice in the wilderness here. What's your opinion? 
Yeah, David, my opinion is it's not so much about a, a you know, the Democratic Party supporting something. It's about individual members. The defense industrial complex has been very uh, smart in that uh, they have defense contractors in every single state and likely in every single district in the country. And a lot of money goes to jobs in everyone's district. And generally, you do things that support the people in your district. And when you have defense contractors in your ear with their workers who are your constituents, it's harder to stand up to it. I do think, though, their excesses have gone too far. We've increased defense spending 20% in just the last four years at a time of relative peace. We've got all sorts of reasons why we don't need more nukes and why we don't need a space force and you know why we don't need more private contractors. And Barbara Lee and I announced this week, actually, we're forming a Congressional Defense Spending Reduction Caucus. I hmm. Again, at next year, we got 93 votes to cut the budget 10%. And, and Tom, you know, that's a, actually a, a really significant thing that's because huge. just three years ago, Barbara Lee had a 1% cut to defense and we got 73 votes. This year we had a 10% cut and we got 93 votes. And we're moving the right direction in this sequester now is delinked in the next year so we don't have to have defense and non-defense discretionary spending tied together. So we are going to spend the next year making the case about the abuse, the fraud, the waste that happens in defense spending. I mean, just one great example, Tom, if I can, the, mm -hmm. the Ford-class aircraft carrier has a significant design flaw in that when toilets get backed up, you have to use $400,000 worth of a special acid to unclog them. So you literally are flushing money down the drain on uh, the aircraft carrier. And that's just like one little example. Every single major defense contractor has been charged with a fraud, and yet they've gotten a trillion dollars worth of contracts. So there's a lot that I think if the American people knew, we can keep moving members of Congress. But to David's question, I think the problem is, you know, I have one company in my district. And unfortunately, I'm going to talk about this a lot in the next year, Tom, because I'm pretty passionate about, you know, lowering our defense budget. They mm -hmm. make a product that's about as big as my pinky. Every year they come by and want us to purchase more submarines than the department asks for because they mm -hmm. make a little part that goes in it. Multiply that across the country and you can tell why it's difficult to get defense spending under control. I think in around the year 2000 or in the late 90s, our defense budget was in the neighborhood of $300 billion a year. Now we're pushing $700 billion a year. I don't think most Americans realize how much it's exploded. Yeah, how much it's exploded. In, it's, it's more than doubled or more you know, in the neighborhood of doubled in 20 years. And I don't see what the threat, obviously 9-11, oh my God, you know, we've got to do something. But you know, where's the big threat? Well, and it's 90 times the budget of the Center for Disease Control. And right now, if you ask anyone what's the biggest threat to the country, they're not going to name a country or a political ideology. They're going to name the COVID virus, right? And uh, yet we spend so little on things that actually help people. We could be putting money into housing and healthcare, into the environment. I mean, there's so many other priorities people have. And yet when you look at what we spend on these items, too, it's just unbelievable the profits that are had by these contractors. And that's where the money is really going. We even said, don't go after military personnel, go after the private contractors and go after the defense contractors and go after the waste and fraud that's out there because there's plenty. Nancy in Woodland, California, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, well, I don't think Congress should vote to fund the Homeland Security Department based on what they're doing in Portland. And so I'm wondering if they did or if you think they will vote to fund them, why? 
Yeah, Nancy, actually, it was announced yesterday, you know, the, the Progressive Caucus was pushing not to have a vote on it. And, and if I can, Tom, and I'll, I'll do this concisely, but, you know, last week, uh, a, a former Bernie low-level staffer uh, put out a, a committee vote without knowing the context and uh, got an uproar from some people thinking that Barbara Lee and I are suddenly corporate uh, sellouts or, or sellouts for the Department of Homeland Security. And you can't explain that in 20, 280 characters. And, and a couple people said, I hope right. he says something in her. So what we've been saying all along is on that committee vote that reduced the number of ice beds, it uh, guaranteed no funds for a wall, it stopped the transfer authority, that that was better than current law and that we voted for so that it would be the uh, position uh, of the Democrats going into any conference committee. But we didn't want to vote on it for the full Congress because we don't support the funding levels on it. And uh, as a progressive caucus, we pushed against it. Uh, Actually, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus wanted to support it on the floor. We ultimately won. It was announced yesterday they're not going to put that bill on the floor because we don't want to, especially not just Portland, but with ICE and what you're talking about, kids in cages, all the rest, we don't want to give that funding. But it is frustrating when, uh, you know, people uh, on Twitter put out something they don't understand, and then people, rather than looking at 30 years of a voting history, they decide to follow someone they don't even know who put something out there, and I waste a little too much time in responding, which I'm not going to do, hopefully, in the future. But, yeah. no, we did fight to make sure it didn't come up, and that won't come up for a vote in the floor of Congress. So it was, a, I think, a big win on behalf of the Progressive Caucus. Yeah. And with regard to Twitter, I just have to tell you, I'm seeing a mind boggling number of bots and trolls that I don't think are coming out of the United States. And I've just stopped engaging with them. You know, I don't I don't don't feed trolls. Um, But anyway, yeah, uh, I've I've started something I didn't want to do, Tom, but I've started blocking people, whether they're from left, right, anywhere. Yeah, especially. Yeah. Like I said, I, I can't tell you how many people, Tom, the last week and these were not trolls who said to me, I can't believe you voted against the 10% cut in defense. And then I had to say, well, wait a minute, that was actually my amendment. I voted for my amendment to cut defense spending. But they would like look at the Senate voting list and not see your name voting for it and then attack rather than say, oh, that's right, they're in a different house in a different body. So I just would hope that people, you know, I expect it from Trump folks to mindlessly drink the Kool-Aid and follow Donald Trump. I do hope that folks, you know, who are progressive, you know, think a little broader as they look at something. If something doesn't look right, I guarantee Barbara Lee is not a sellout for the defense industrial complex, uh, right? Her entire career shows that. And yet I watched a lot of comments around that. And I, I just want us to, you know, perhaps, Take that pause before we go on the attack when, you know, we see a tweet from someone we don't even know. So, I mean, I think, you know, this is at the 30,000 foot level. I just make an appeal to folks. But take a second to ask rather than attack, because I've now taken to I'm starting to block people who don't read or think. I don't care what political ideology on my political page anyway on Twitter, because it's just it's a toxic environment and we don't need to be as toxic as Donald Trump's folks. So just, you know, I hope that helps. And we won. We had a big win. We are not voting on the full floor of Congress for those levels of funding, given Portland, given what they do with kids in cages and all the rest. And that was our goal. And we accomplished it as of yesterday. Yeah, sadly, the algorithms that Twitter and Facebook use promote fights, basically. They promote anything that's hot and inflammatory. And, uh, you know, very often that stuff that's just complete BS, which is so, so unfortunate. So back to our calls here. Don in uh, Chenango Bridge, New York. You're on the air with Congressman Pokian. Okay, I have a short question. I was just wondering, currently we have like a hundred foot bubble around the voting places. 
and I was wondering if that could be increased due to the physical distancing requirements. Hmm. Uh, Don, first of all, I do think it varies locality to locality and state to state. So, you know, that may be what it is in your area. But I, we're going to have to do all of that with the election, which is why many of us are trying to do vote by mail or minimum. And I do mean minimum absentee ballot requests uh, so people don't have to go vote. On Election Day, I was talking to uh, the governor in Wisconsin's office uh, just in the last 24 hours about this. And, you know, we're trying to get supplies so we can have poll workers work safely right now. And we're having some supply issues. And it's going to be tough to run this election safely. So we really do need people to think ahead and request an absentee ballot where they can and, and get that ballot so they don't have to wait and take any risk that we might have by Election Day. Lynn in Chicago. Hi, I'm a guardian of an adult with autism in Illinois, and he gets Social Security, he works a little bit, and so I call in his income every month. I get four pages, because I'm the guardian, every every month. He gets four pages in the mail, both enveloped up, printed back and forth, eight pages total, for a dollar change in his Social Security payment. How do we get Social Security less dependent on paper? Lynn, I hear you. I'm dealing with my mother right now who's 91 in an assisted living facility. And because she got an increase in Social Security, it almost threw off all the other assistants. And she's on Medicaid because she's not a wealthy woman. And um, I'll tell you, going through that paperwork is incredibly frustrating. Hopefully, when we have the House, Senate and President, we can do something about it. But I I absolutely hear what you're saying. And uh, you're right. I mean, we shouldn't for such small little things. We can uh, create hours of work on behalf of uh, government employees and the people affected. So uh, let me pass on the uh, I'm sorry on behalf of the federal government for what you're going through. Michael in Ontario, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Pocan. How are you? Hey, good, Michael. Thank you. Great. I wanted to ask you a question. The question is, if law enforcement knew that they faced loss of union protection, seizure of all assets, defense, and their defense remanded to the public defender's pool with a federal trial heard by jurors from their victims' community where a guilty conviction equaled serving a 30 years to life prison sentence without the possibility of parole? Do you think excessive force crime as we know it would all but cease to exist? And if so, if I were to email you the platform proposal for such an act, would you strongly consider authoring it and presenting it before Congress? It's a viable accountability measure, and I could send that email today. Yeah, Michael, we um, already have passed a bill in the House that I think does, quite honestly, significantly more than that uh, to help address it, uh, creating the database of police officers who offend, uh, taking away the immunity that they currently have. It does a lot of very serious reforms because it's more than just that one thing you bring up that needs to happen. And I'm hoping, but not counting on uh, Mitch McConnell to take up something in this area that would actually get across the finish line. If not, we're going to have to do it once we have the Senate and the president come November, or actually come January when they actually take office. But I think the, the package that went through the House was much more comprehensive and will really do an awful lot to try to curb a lot of the current problems. Adam in New Orleans, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Congressman Tom. I see defunding of the U.S. Postal Service as intrinsically tied to voter suppression, and your comment earlier suggests the same. Is funding for the U.S. Postal Service um, as part of the COVID stimulus, is this negotiable from the Democratic perspective? I'd argue it shouldn't be. 
Yeah, so we had $25 billion requested plus some additional funds for the USPS in the HEROES Act that we passed two and a half months ago. Uh, we also would like to do vote-by-mail provisions. I, I think the vote-by-mail may be a non-starter with the Senate Republicans, but certainly support for the post office shouldn't be. So I know uh, we're going to have a letter coming out a little later today from the Progressive Caucus with our priorities and within our top 10 priorities is funding for the Postal Service. We really want that to stay. And, um, you know, it's silly we're having this fight. We're having this fight because under uh, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, there was a provision that makes the Postal Service have to prepay benefits 75 years into the future. No other business or government agency has to do that. And that's largely why they've had some financial issues. Uh, We've got to get rid of that. Um, We're not going to do that with Mitch McConnell. But part of it is voter suppression. Part of it is privatization. Don't forget, they would just as soon have a private enterprise take over what the Postal Service does. And yet in the Constitution, it's one of the few federal agencies that's actually mentioned in the Constitution. So we have to do everything we can to protect it. Larry in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you for taking my call, Congressman and Tom, longtime listener. Uh, I just wanted to be sure that even if you can't get specific funding for vote by mail or absentee voting, are you going to be able to include any funding for election security generally in the current COVID bill that's under consideration? Yeah, Larry. Um, so we had it again in the HEROES Act. I have to go back and think two and a half months ago what we did. We've been waiting for the Senate Republicans to decide there's a problem going on in this country. And I think that might be one that could move forward because we have to do something different about how elections are done. And I think now that a lot of red states are seeing these huge spikes in COVID, I think uh, that may make senators more willing to do some right decisions. Um, As we know, Republicans often have to be personally affected by something to actually deal with it. So I think there's some good chances that could be continued into the bill. Don in St. Charles, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Congressman. Hey, Don. Recently, I heard one of the uh, Democratic Department heads giving a little speech, and she started out by saying, I know government has failed the American people. Why are Democrats taking ownership of failed Republican policies? No one should ever say. We, We have, why don't they simply say Republican policies have failed the American people and we are working to solve them? And then secondly, every time you guys are on TV, on the radio, or simply making a speech before Congress, you need to say we will protect Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the post office. So tell me why you guys uh, aren't being a little more selective in your speech. And I thank you so much for your hard work, Mark. Have a good day. Yeah. Well, thank you, Don. And I'm not sure who the Democratic Department head is. I'm not sure what that position is. But um, I have heard people say uh, pretty rarely, but but what you're bringing up, and I I agree with you, uh, it's defeatist language. It's not correct. I mean, I don't think anyone's failed by Social Security or Medicare. Uh, In fact, those are quite popular programs. I don't think anyone's failed by the Postal Service. So uh, you're absolutely right in your sentiment. I just think um, I'm not seeing it 
that those things come out of people, at least that I've seen from the, the floor of Congress or from members of Congress. So I can't speak to the person who said it. Um, and, and quite honestly, we do say it. In fact, um, John Larson from Connecticut has a bill that has a majority of the Democrats on it. In fact, I think he's got 200 people on it uh, that actually want to expand Social Security. Um, so many of us are on record saying that. So I, I think we're in the right place, Don. I can't speak to the person that you heard say that, but I agree with you. Um, you know, talking from their talking points isn't necessarily a, a good thing, especially when it's not accurate. Mario in Berwyn, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Pokin. Sure. Thank you kindly taking my call, sir. It's an honor to talk mm-hmm. to you, gentlemen. I just walking home right now. And, I, I, and, and my mail was uh, two literatures, uh, Ms. Pelosi asking for money. I'm more than glad to send this woman, uh, send her whatever I can afford. I love to see her when she speaks poetry with her hands, and when you're looking at her, how eloquent she is. I'm willing to send money to her as much as I can. My question is, if this is for real, we have the chief and the fraud and the White House and I don't take a pass, everything can be a fraud. So I just want to be sure that I'm going to send the money to her. That is one. And the second is, I received both my bail uh, over here in Illinois, and I'm very glad to do that. But the most important thing, I will try to make and send the most money to Ms. Pelosi. Thank you for taking my call. Mr. Thomas, an honor to, to, to talk to you. I met you at Darien, Illinois. Thank you. I take my call out of the air. Thank you, Mario. Nice to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you, Mario. And, you know, I I think uh, if I can take your point and even bring it to 30,000 foot, Mario, um, you know, everyone needs to get involved in every possible way in the next less than 100 days. Um, You know, Bernie Sanders, I saw, said something today that I I really took to heart, which is this may be the most important 100 days uh, or one of the most important 100 days in our history of our country. Um, You know, with what Donald Trump is doing to it, I haven't seen another president in my lifetime do. And uh, we need to stop this. And we need to to restore our place in in the in the globe we need to stop having people die because we're going to be uh, proudly ignorant of science we need to to change the course and i think whatever people can do to help whether it be volunteering talking to their friends using social media positively helping you know when you get a mailing anything you can do mario and others it's going to be important this is a real important next less than 100 days congressman coming. Uh, uh, let's forgive the interruption people. but we only have yeah. 45 seconds so we hit a break but i think what he's speaking to is we now there's reporting this morning for brandon fisher over at american bridge that the trump family has taken a quarter mm-hmm. of a billion dollars 250 oh, million dollars yeah. you know and much of it is coming through these phony charities i get four or five of these solicitations a day and some of them have you know one of donald trump's daughters-in-law you know as their spokespersons yeah. and they're just they're just scams how does somebody know? I, it seems like the answer would be know who the organization is. If you get a fundraising mailing right. that says give money to Nancy Pelosi because you're a registered Democrat and it's got the name of, of a group on it that is, you know, a, a right wing group, you know, be careful. Good right? point. I generally say support candidates and their committees and then things like, you know, a, a, the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee over, you know, Save the Earth or, you know, a group that no heard of because you don't know where that money's going. But I, I also think that Donald Trump is especially good at profitizing off his own campaign. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's making it's making Democrats concerned. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Congressman Mark Pokey, I'm the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour with more right after this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Congressman Pokan's website is pokan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pokan. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Let's see here. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Tom and Congressman Pocan. Thanks for the always great town hall. Congressman Pocan, before I get to my 
question really quick. I just want to give a shout-out to your Progressive Caucus co-chair, Congresswoman Jayapal, for her skating takedown of Bill Barr's right-wing authoritarian impulses. But to my question, Congressman, Senator Schumer was on MSNBC saying he believes you guys have good leverage, and I agree. I think Trump desperately wants to put his name on another round of one-time $1,200 direct payments. But in my opinion, Congressman, that's where you guys should one-up him and push for monthly direct payments, preferably of 2000 to everyone, because A, you can say to the American people, Trump wanted to give you chump change, and we fought to get you these sustainable monthly checks, and B, we know direct payments to people in need are highly stimulative to the economy, so when we, the Democrats, win in November, we won't be inheriting a completely catastrophic economy. What do you think, Congressman Pocan? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right, Chef, on both fronts. First of all, Pramil Jayapal, I think, did an amazing job, as she always does. I'm very proud to be uh, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus with her. And you're right, you know, a, a $1,200 check, quite honestly, is nothing more than Donald Trump trying to buy a vote. He's going to send a letter out again, which was ridiculous waste of money. When we have proposed originally monthly regular payments, that's what the Progressive Caucus proposed. I don't think the Republicans are going to go for that. I think my priority going right now is to make sure that anyone who's been hurt, um, you've lost your job at no fault of their own, your demand for your business is, is, is not there through no fault of your own. Um, those are the folks we got to make whole because that's where the jobs are. And uh, I think on unemployment, keeping that extra money up so that people can pay their rent and continue to survive during this pandemic is really, really important. And a, a one-time $1,200 check that Donald Trump's just going to try to use politically probably isn't as valuable as helping people who need it the most. And I, I really hope we keep that focus because it looks like the fight is over how much money we're going to spend. We had a $3 trillion bill. The Republicans don't want to spend more than a trillion. You can't do everything uh, with less money. So we're going to have to really prioritize. But thank you for your comments, Jeff. Mike in St. Louis, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thanks for taking my call. Tom, you're a Medicare beneficiary, as I'm I, and many of your listeners are either on Medicare or the rest of them are going to be on Medicare, but they're not if, if this Medicare Advantage program continues. It's a Trojan horse that's slowly yep. bleeding Medicare. Tom and, and the congressman, what do you say about this? Yeah, Mike, you know, I, I do think we need to do more to look at the various plans that are out there. My 91-year-old mother signed up for one of these, and while she thinks it's helping her pay for her drugs, we have a program in Wisconsin called Senior Care that's helped seniors for a number of years pay for their drugs, but she also can't get some services that she should have gotten just through directly through Medicare had she not signed up for the supplemental. And I think we have to really make sure that we're watching these plans and making sure that they're not ripping people off in a way that that defies consumer law, and I think many do. And this is something that should we uh, be able to get the majority, hopefully we can uh, have some time to have hearings. Um, right now, as you know, we're just kind of swamped by COVID and, and by the, the swampiness of the Trump administration. But uh, you bring up a very good point. And like I said, I'm seeing it personally from, you know, something that my mom signed up for, but I don't know if she really knew exactly what she had signed up for. Justin in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, fellas, I'm wondering about the uh, student loan provisions. There was nothing in the Republican bill, so I wanted to see what the Democrats were thinking about countering with in their bill. Yeah, Justin, there is something in the HEROES Act, but as I mentioned, we passed it yeah, 10 weeks ago. I don't remember the exact provisions around that, but I'm sure if you Googled those two things together, HEROES Act and student loans, 
you'd probably find exactly what was in there, but I know that was addressed, and hopefully that's something that as they negotiate between the two bills, we'll move forward. Brooks in Phoenix, Arizona, you're on the air with Congress in Pocan. Yeah, good morning, guys. I was interested in the, the call about uh, why it is so difficult for Democrats to vote against defense bills because of the uh, jobs associated with all those contractors. <laughs> and I, I am an ex-Boeing engineer myself who has been laid off by Boeing. And uh, my thought about it is, rather than building weapons, if we were to repurpose a company like Boeing with the talent that they have, to do something like build the best rail system connected with the best light rail that would be the envy of the world, we would be able to do this rather than building weapons. And I think that would go a lot easier with Democrats. Yeah, Brooks, two things. One, you're right. I think the difficulty, as you know, from working for a company like that, they don't want to change over what they're doing because there's a cost and they just want to keep doing what they're doing, even if it's uh, an obsolete weapon system. So, you know, there is that challenge. But secondly, you're onto something else that a lot of us have started talking about. It's not just that we want to cut defense spending. It's really the type of defense spending. There's an argument that you could repurpose defense dollars for other things because the definition of defense really should include COVID-19. We should be able to use defense dollars to defend the American people against a disease. We should be able to use it uh, in a number of other areas. And I think that's another idea worthy of putting forward, because if we can take some of the current dollars, I would argue uh, investment in CDC provides more defense for this country right now than uh, another aircraft carrier or or a few more F-35s. And I think that's part of a a future debate we're going to have. Jack in Folsom, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. Actually, I'm calling about Social Security, but I just want to point out, remember, Eisenhower gave us the interstate highway system based on the defense rationale. So that's a very good point, I think. But uh, Social Security, and I'm not trying to complain or accuse. I just want to understand. The, uh, as you mentioned, Representative Larson has a saved Social Security bill without cutting Social Security. Save it without cutting. He introduced that more than, I think, a year and a half ago. Why can't the House, yeah. the Democratic House, pass that? Why is that such a heavy lift for the Democratic House? Yeah, I'm, I agree with you, Jack. It's all a magic number, right? We need 218 votes. And I think, John, I believe, and I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but I think he has over 200 sponsors. But I don't think he's at the point that he has 218 votes yet. You know, part of it is you don't want something to go on the floor and to go down. So you keep trying to get the votes. And now, honestly, because we're not able to function quite as we would have liked you for the last five or six months, a lot less legislation has moved forward. We're doing the must-pass stuff like appropriations. But some of those have taken a back seat. But I'm with you. You know, John has been in my office a number of times. We're strategizing on how to make sure that we can prove there's 218 votes to move it forward. We're just honestly not there yet. I'm, I'm a little surprised that we would have some Democrats who may not be supportive on it. But it's something that we have to do from the grassroots to convince those members that their constituents want and need this. Is there a list anywhere of the member of the Democrats who are not supporting that bill that we could uh, lobby? Yeah, I mean, you simply, yeah, you take the list of Democrats and just subtract out the sponsors of John's bill. And it's probably, again, I, I'm forgetting the numbers offhand, Tom, but I'd say about 30 or so people. And uh, those are the folks that we got to work on. Yeah, remarkable. What should we be looking for this week? 
this next seven days? Yeah, really, the negotiations yeah, on the COVID bill are going to be a priority. So if you start seeing us talk about things we have to defend, especially the extra money for unemployment, I think that's the number one priority I have going into the negotiations. Help us amplify that by reaching out to your member of Congress and demanding it. Great. And the, the number for the congressional switchboard is 202-224-3121. Congressman, thank you again for dropping by this week. It's so great having you with us. Of course. Thank you, Tom, as always. Great talking to you. Our book today is The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. This is from Chapter 2, How We Got Here, page 12. The Great Displacement didn't arrive overnight. It has been building for decades as the economy and labor markets changed in response to improving technology, financialization, changing corporate norms, and globalization. In the 1970s, when my parents worked at GE and Blue Cloth Blue Shield in upstate New York, their companies provided generous pensions and expected them to stay for decades. Community banks were boring businesses to let money to local companies for a modest return. Over 20% of workers were unionized. Some economics problems existed. Growth was uneven and inflation periodically high, but income inequality was low. Jobs provided benefits, and Main Street businesses were the drivers of the economy. There were only three television networks, and in my house we watched them on a TV with an antenna that we fiddled with to make the picture clearer. That all seems awfully quaint today. Pensions disappeared for private sector employees years ago. Most community banks were gobbled up by mega banks in the 1990s. Today, five banks control 50% of the commercial banking industry, which is self-mushroomed to the point where finance enjoys about 25% of all corporate profits. Union membership fell by 50%. 94% of the jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were temp or contractor jobs without benefits. People working multiple gigs to make ends meet is increasingly the norm. Real wages have been flat or even declining. The chances that an American born in 1990 will earn more than their parents are down to 50%. For Americans born in 1940, the same figure was 92%. Thanks to Milton Friedman, Jack Welch, and other corporate titans, the goals of large companies began to change in the early 70s and early 1980s. The notion they espoused that a company exists only to maximize its share price became gospel in business schools and boardrooms around the country. Companies were pushed to adopt shareholder value as their sole measuring stick. Hostile takeovers, shareholder lawsuits, and later activist hedge funds served as prompts to ensure the managers were committed to profitability at all costs. On the flip side, CEOs were granted stock options for the first time that wedded their individual gain to the company's share price. The ratio of CEO to worker pay rose from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 271 to 1 in 2016. Benefits were streamlined and reduced, and the relationship between company and employee weakened to become more transactional. Simultaneously, the major banks grew and evolved as Depression-era regulations separating consumer lending and investment banking were abolished. Financial deregulation started under Ronald Reagan in 1980 and culminated in the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 under Bill Clinton that really set the banks loose. The securities industry grew 500% as a share of GDP between 1980 and the 2000s, while ordinary bank deposits shrank from 70 to 50%. Financial products multiplied as even Main Street companies were driven to pursue financial engineering to manage their affairs. GE, my dad's old company, once a beacon of manufacturing, became the fifth biggest financial institution in the country by 2007. 
With improved technology and new access to global markets, American companies realized they could outsource manufacturing, information technology, and customer service to Chinese and Mexican factories and Indian programmers and call centers. U.S. companies outsourced and offshored 14 million jobs by 2013, many of which had previously been filled by domestic workers at higher wages. This resulted in lower prices, higher efficiencies, and some new opportunities, but also increased pressures on American workers who now had to compete in a global labor pool. Automation started out on farms earlier in the century with tractors and then migrated to factories in the 1970s. Manufacturing employment began to slip around 1978 as wage growth began to fall. Median wages used to go up in lockstep with productivity and GDP growth before diverging sharply in the 1970s. Since 1973, productivity has skyrocketed relative to the hourly compensation of the average wage earner. How workers are compensated and how their companies perform stopped even being aligned over the same period. Even as corporate profitability has soared to record highs, workers are earning less. The share of GDP going to wages has fallen from almost 54% in 1970 to 44% in 2013, while the share going to corporate profits went from 4% to 11%. Being a shareholder has been great for your bottom line. Being a worker, not so much. Today, inequality has surged to historic levels, with benefits flowing increasingly to the top 1% and 20% of earners due to an aggregation of capital at the top and increased winner-take-all economics. The top 1% have accrued 52% of the real income growth in America since 2009. Technology is a big part of this story as it tends to lead to a small handful of winners. Studies have shown that everyone is less happy in an unequal society, even those at the top. The wealthy experience higher levels of depression and suspicion in unequal societies. Apparently being high status is easier when you don't feel bad about it. Companies can now prosper, grow, and mint record profits without hiring many people or increasing wages. Both job creation and wage growth have been weaker than the top-line economic growth would suggest since the 1970s. In each of the last several decades, the economy has created lower percentages of new jobs, including no new net jobs between 2000 and 2010. Andrew Yang, The War on Normal People. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, what more appropriate guest to have on the day that we learned that the economy contracted by almost 33%, 32.9%, a record crash. I mean, this is Great Depression level, in fact, worse than Great Depression level, contraction of GDP, I believe. Then Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his most recent, Understanding Socialism, rdwolf2fs.com, as well his uh, Twitter handle, ProfWolf. There was an AP NORC poll of businesses and that suggests that half of the jobs that have been lost in the last six months during the, the whole Trump virus thing will never come back. 
and that you know we're going to fundamentally have to restructure our society. And then on top of that, we get this report today of this 32.9% plunge in GDP. Where do we go from here? What does this mean? How do we reinvent an economy? Well, I think the first step has to be to put aside the level of denial that has accompanied what we've been going through for at least the last 15 weeks. It starts at the top with a studied effort to deny the pandemic, to deny the crash, and now to deny the scope of what it is we are going through. It boggles my mind. I am not the only one. But before we can talk about what has to come next, there has to be some kind of end to the make-believe, to the notion that we are in a place where fiddling around at the edges of our economic difficulties is adequate. I mean, that's what Republicans and Democrats alike have been doing. If you watch the debates these days, it is surrealistic. In the midst of a crash that is like the greatest depression of the 1930s, which was the greatest crash of capitalism until the one we're in now, you would imagine that you're on another planet. Really? In the depths of the Greatest Depression, you're going to reduce the amount of help you give to unemployed people when half their jobs are never coming back, as per your quotation, when the jobs that will be there will be under enormous pressure from the employer to cut wages, to cut benefits, to demand more time, a speedier process. The worst isn't the people who won't get a job. The worst is the people who will discover that the job they've had all along, or the one they're returning to, is going to be occurring in an economy that is geared up to take the most away from the mass of people as the way to get through it. Let me put it one other way. There is a phrase called class war. Americans are now going to have to understand that that's where we are and that we are going into a period of time, whoever wins the presidency in November, of unparalleled historical conflict as we try to figure out who is going to have to give up what in order to reconstruct a functioning economy. It's going to be a huge debate. Uh, you know, it's That's going to be right. a huge issue. We've talked many times over, over the last years, Professor Wolf, about setting aside capitalism, reinventing capitalism, reinventing socialism, turning businesses from for-profit capitalist enterprises into cooperatives, things like that. This seems so much larger and more structural than small fixes. I mean, this seems like it requires, please, I'd love your thoughts on this. It seems to me like what we're facing right now is something that is even a greater crisis than the ones that Marx was addressing back in the 1860s. Where do we find, you know, some solutions or some model that could work? Well, I mean, you know, that's the debate we're about to have. Let me try to give you some parameters or some dimensions of it. We live in a capitalist system in which the following governs what happens. Profit. Is it profitable for John or Mary or Bill 
to start a business, to build a business, to hire people, hire more people? The answer is always, in a capitalist system, we will do it if and insofar as it is profitable. You keep your job so long as your employer profits from selling what you help to produce. Here is the question then. Will that system that allows the decision about how many jobs are going to be created and what kind of world we live in to be determined by a subset of the population, the people in the business of making profits? And let's remember, Profits are something employers are driven by, and employers are a very small minority of our total population. Are we as a society going to be willing to have our jobs, our income, our very lives in the hands of a minority driven by profit? Can we wait that long until it's profitable for us all to have a job? Can we wait that long until it's profitable to make our income in that job sufficient to raise a family under the conditions we thought were ours as American citizens? I fear that the answer to that question is no, that we are not going to wait indefinitely. We are not going to allow that minority uh, to continue in that dominant position because now they cannot deliver to us the jobs, the incomes, the rising standard of living that we thought was something somehow built into the United States. It is now going to be a period of time as Americans discover that what they have denied, namely that this system can break down, that this system may not be the best way to solve the problems of producing the goods and services and distributing them in a socially sustainable way, they're going to discover now that that's an open question, not a settled question, and then all bets are off because the presumptions about our politics, about our culture, about the communities we live in are about to be undone as the implications of this crisis begin slowly to get stronger than our powers of denial have so far kept them from being. And yet we've seen where government has replaced employers as the employer, presumably yes. acting on behalf of the people, and it didn't work out all that well in, in uh, you know, East Germany or, or the Soviet Union. Absolutely not, and it's not working out real well now. And you have to face then the reality that what they did in the Soviet Union or what they did elsewhere was to stay with the employer-employee relationship, changing who the employer was, not private citizens, but now government officials. And you're discovering, as you rightly say, I agree with you, that wasn't the solution either. So the question then is, can we change the very basic way we decide who works, what he or she works for, how they get paid, and we can't go on with the way we have been doing it, because that's what got us here. Yeah, let's continue this conversation next week. It's brilliant. Right. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, great talking with you. Uh, this hang on just is a the Tom Hartman Program.
You can find Professor Wolf's writings and, uh, and work over at uh, uh, rdwolf.com and uh, also uh, democracywork.info. Danny in Inglewood, Colorado. Hey, Danny, what's on your mind today? Hey, hi, Tom. Hey, I just wanted to state the fact that everybody's going to focus on the 33% drop in the GDP, which is huge and horrible. But Trump is quick to brag about the small things, but missing is the fact that the first quarter was down 3%, too. And that's why now, officially, you know, we are in a recession. You listen to his brag. We were okay up into the virus, but no, the economy was already starting to shrink. And so you're right. You're right. Yeah, the recession had begun that. before we had a single death from the virus in the United States. And, and everybody ignores that or overlooks that or forgets that or, you know, it was never even well publicized. But the market was starting to shrink. And it's Fed intervention that has brought this together. And yeah, and I get it also that these measurements, it's not literally the second quarter. There's a bit of a time shift in these statistics because of the, the time it takes to gather them and all those kind of things. But yeah, I completely I completely agree. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Wow, Donald Trump is going all racist all the time. This is his Hail Mary, right? He has concluded that he is so far behind that the only way he can win this election is to get as many racist white people to the polls as possible. And maybe he can squeak it out this insanely racist tweet. I am happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream. Now, you and I know he means white people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. And we know that what he means by low-income housing is black people. This is, this is not even code. This is not even dog whistle. This is skywriting. He said, your housing, this is his tweet. Your housing prices will go up based on the market and crime will go down because I have rescinded the Obama-Biden AFFH rule. Enjoy. This is a follow-up to a Facebook Live tele-rally. Now that he's trademarked the word, he can charge his own committee and his own fund. You know, he, can, he can pay himself to do these things to people in Iowa, an Iowa rally. And he said they want to end, they Democrats, want to end school choice. They want to abolish charter schools. It's ridiculous. They want to abolish and really hurt the suburbs because that's their plan. That's very much agreed to by them. They want to make it worse. He said they don't mind if low-income housing is built in a neighborhood in a beautiful suburb of Iowa or a beautiful suburb anywhere in the country. Again, he means black low-income housing in white suburbs. Come on, let's just acknowledge what the president of the United States is saying. He says, this has been going on for years. Obama, you know, that black president, made it much worse. And now they want Cory Booker, you know, that black senator. Now they want Cory Booker to run that program. Cory Booker, you know, that black guy from New Jersey, where there's all those black people, to run that program and make it many times worse than it is right now. He goes on to say, people he, he have gone to the suburbs. He's talking about white people have gone to the suburbs. They want the beautiful homes. 
They don't want to have low-income housing developments built in their community, filled with black people, of course, which has reduced the price of their homes and also increased crime substantially. By the way, in the meantime, the Department of Health and Human Services published a study of what happened when a low-income housing development was put into a white suburban neighborhood in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. According to the Department of HHS, quote, it was not associated with trends in crime, property values, or taxes. They have mitigated potential negative externalities. In other words, no big deal. Oh, but Donald Trump, he's got to turn this into a thing, right? This is going to, I'm, I'm telling you, he has been running on racism since 2015. He's been, you know, he's been promoting racism since he was a kid, since he was, you know, working for his dad and writing C for colored on the applications of, of black people who wanted to rent properties in their low-income housing. Jared Kushner is a slumlord. That's his major source of income. That's breathtaking. Here in Oregon, the governor, our governor, Governor Brown, has announced that there will be a phased withdrawal of federal officers from Portland. This is at the same time that Trump was saying, we're going to get rid of them. Say what? Really? He said, we're going to have to go in and clean it out. He's talking about Portland. We have to clean out their city and we're going to do it for them. He said, we're going to get rid of people. How did that work out back in Germany? How did that work out? How does that, you know, how did that work out in Chile under Pinochet? Oh yeah, we're going to get rid of people. Why are they leaving? Well, it might be that this is backfiring on Trump. That his, you know, throwing stormtroopers, secret police into an American city has actually brought out even more Republicans, more Lincoln Project ads. It might be that they don't want to pay the fines. Portland Commissioner Chloe uh, Udele, apologies if I'm mispronouncing, Chloe is also the head of the Transportation Bureau here in Portland. I kind of, you know, lightly referred to this as the parking ticket police, but basically that's what it is. And Chloe is fining the federal government $500 every 15 minutes, which is the maximum fine under Portland law for building a fence that crosses a bike lane. As of last night, the federal government owed Portland a uh, hundred and some odd thousand dollars, $192,000, and uh, every 15 minutes it goes up by 500 bucks. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson, remember this video that Trump and his son got deleted on Facebook and Twitter for broadcasting his Twitter of this, this video of this woman who was claiming not only that lizard people are running the government, actual leftover dinosaur DNA, that the dinosaurs never went away, that lizards survived, but they can conceal themselves, they can hide themselves as humans. That's one of her arguments. She came out and said, oh yeah, hydroxychloroquine, I'm using it with my patients and I haven't lost a single one yet. Right. So Tucker Carlson played that video in Fox News. And then he said, I mean, this is mind boggling. He, He called it a scientific advancement that a drug that causes heart attacks and does not affect COVID at all is a scientific advancement. He says, any scientific advancement that reduces the suffering of Americans in an election year is a threat to Joe Biden's campaign. Now, if Democrats want to erase a politically inconvenient news story fewer than 100 days before the election, they can do that, and they did do that. Right. They pulled the video of doctors in lab coats talking about coronavirus research, and they hid that video from the public. But I'm going to show it right here on Fox News because we don't care if people die. 
I mean, he didn't say that last part, obviously, but, you know, what, else, what other conclusion can you come to? This is just crazy. Other events in the news here. Talk about burying the lead or having the wrong headline. The headline here at NBC News says Florida reported a record 191 coronavirus deaths overnight. But then you read the first paragraph where they say, yes, Florida set another grim record with 200 more deaths. But in recent days, an ominous sight outside a funeral home has been sending a shiver through a Miami area town, a refrigerated trailer for storing bodies. Rumors that the corpses of coronavirus victims are being stored there and unfounded fears that the bodies could spread the disease, coronavirus, have sparked several protests in recent days outside the San Jose funeral home in Hialeah, Florida. Lillian Vasquez Acosta, who lives near the funeral home, she said, we went to the funeral home to ask about it. and They told us they were at capacity and that they had COVID-infected bodies that they were storing in that container. Uh, The mayor of Hialeah, Carlos Hernandez, uh, says, yes, there are bodies being stored in the trailer. But he said the trailer was moved out of sight on Tuesday into a fenced-in area on the property where the neighbors can't see it. And he adds, there was never any danger to anyone. Right. Meanwhile, never any danger. Meanwhile, this case in Vietnam, Vietnam had gone like three months without a single case. And they opened up parts of the country to tourism, to internal tourism. And Da Nang is uh, the, the main city where this was happening. And like, you know, tens of thousands of tourists came to Da Nang. And then now they've got this outbreak of COVID. They can't figure out where it came from. They're assuming it has to be somebody who flew in from another country and whose case of coronavirus survived a quarantine or whatever it may be, and they're freaking out. And it's like, you know, they had thought, okay, we've got this thing on our... This is a country of 90 million people. This is not some little country someplace. But they had this under control. And I think, you know, barring a polio-level, smallpox-level, worldwide successful vaccination effort, which I'm very skeptical of, given that this coronavirus is you know, so resistant to things like vaccines. We've never successfully developed a vaccine for coronavirus. We couldn't do it for SARS, couldn't do it for MERS, couldn't do it for the common cold. That, you know, things are going to be very different going forward. And we're going to have to think about reinventing government and culture and society and our economy and our everything. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 